Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Southern California. Neil will be back next week. Hurricane Dorian is still causing some issues throughout the southeast and did do some damage in parts of northern Florida when it passed in that area. For today, we're going to be discussing the situation with written discovery and unlawful detainer lawsuits. Now, there is a judicial foreclosure component to this. Uh, We won't get into that today. The the vast majority of the scenarios where you see these unlawful detainer lawsuits, particularly the type that I'm going to be describing today, they do involve non-judicial foreclosures. And partly because there is not any kind of judicially uh, mediated, I don't mean mediation, I mean involved process per se in a non-judicial foreclosure, there's a higher burden typically in all non-judicial foreclosure states recognize the need post-foreclosure for a so-called new owner, be they a third-party purchaser or be they the so-called former beneficiary, in all cases, that owner needs to go into court and file a separate unlawful detainer lawsuit. Now, granted, that's invariably a limited lawsuit rather than an unlimited one. And many listeners will be familiar with that distinction. Just briefly, an unlimited lawsuit in any jurisdiction is over a certain pretty significant amount, uh, the monetary amount asked for in a lawsuit is considered to be such that there's a major lawsuit ongoing, undertaken, and that because that amount at least is at issue, the, the court will give extra legal procedures to both parties. Now, that unlimited amount in California, remember that's the jurisdiction I practice in and I'm familiar with, that amount's $25,000. A limited lawsuit in California involves, historically it was 10, 
uh, in some cases, it's 15,000 now. In fact, in California, you can now get up to 12,500, which is in small claims court. Uh, but th there are still limited lawsuits at the $10,000 range. And that's especially where you'll see an unlawful detainer lawsuit in California. And just as a brief reminder also, an unlawful detainer lawsuit is where there's a uh, an eviction suit over tenancy in the property. And because in a foreclosure case, there is no tenancy, in fact, as of the the time of sale, literally, the former owner then becomes a holdover tenant. Holdover meaning they're treated like an illegal tenant. A holdover tenant, again, some of you will be familiar with this, but for those of you who are not, a holdover tenant is a tenant who typically they did have a tenancy, they did have a rental agreement, but they've chosen to violate the rental agreement. They've chosen not to pay. They've chosen to withhold rent. That may or may not be considered legitimate, depending on the facts and the law. Uh, however, in all those situations, holding over means that, at least at the front level, they're going to be considered illegally detained and illegally staying in the property. So the landlord can then sue to remove them claiming they're holding over illegitimately. So when a foreclosure happens, you were never a real tenant, of course, because you were the owner of the property. I'm speaking, of course, about the borrowers and to the borrowers who are listening to this show. However, as of the time of the sale, you immediately become a holdover tenant. And that's better than, than, than having no legal status at all. Otherwise, the scenario that that post-foreclosure homeowners will talk to me about, they don't know the law necessarily, and there's no reason why they would or should. And naturally, they think that the sheriff might show up uh, days later even, once a foreclosure sale happens. Now, that doesn't happen in California. That doesn't happen in any non-judicial foreclosure uh, jurisdiction in any state employing that method of foreclosure sale. I will say that a number of states have really limited protections, though, and the unlawful detainer process is ridiculously summary. In California, it's still way too summary. However, it's a real kind of framework of legal procedure that an unlawful detainer plaintiff has to follow. So it's not just a backstop or a pit stop for the UD plaintiff. They have to do some proving up of their case, and they are subject to some real and meaningful, if very limited, pushback from the UD defendant. So the focus today is on discovery and written discovery specifically. We won't get into depositions. Uh, that's something that Bill has had some experience in. That's unlawful detainer deposition who went up on this show, as frequent listeners will be aware of. I think 
Bill and I will take that as a topic, or at least a subtopic for a future show. But for today, I will be discussing only written discovery and unlawful detainer cases. Now, the first uh, subtopic that I will be addressing relates to where the unlawful detainer plaintiff is the so-called beneficiary on the so-called previous loan, not a third-party purchaser. Remember, when a, when a property goes to a non-judicial foreclosure, there are two scenarios that happen. And again, this is true everywhere. You will see a non-judicial foreclosure. It's not just true in California. It's true in any state, even a state that's primarily a judicial foreclosure state where there's a specific case that uses a non-judicial foreclosure lawsuit or procedure rather, because it's not a lawsuit. That's the whole point. So where you have a non-judicial foreclosure at the actual auction sale, unless that auction sale is postponed, and that can be by any number of methods, sometimes by operation of law, such as bankruptcy, automatic stay, oftentimes at the beneficiary's request. Well, who's the beneficiary? Well, as I put in air quotes and use the term so-called, a beneficiary is either the service or claiming to hold the beneficial interest, meaning they claim to nominally or somehow hold or somehow have the legal right to claim reference to the note and the associated deed of trust, or it's an institutional, often securitized trust in the background somewhere who they claim to be the nominal note and deed of trust holder. The Deutsche Banks with the 17-word trust after them, the Wells Fargo's, the Banks of America, all these different institutional lenders with, again, an absolute uh, just crazy quill range of words to describe the, the trust that they purport to represent. So it's kind of like in bankruptcy court, the party that will show up as your unlawful standard plaintiff, they will always be the the party that claims to control and hold your note, whether that's a former securitized trust or whether it's a servicer, it's highly likely to be one of those parties. So when that party shows up in your case, claiming to be the former beneficiary, and they sue you in an eviction lawsuit, you're on a very short timeline and a very short leash, even in California. So once you're served the unlawful detainer lawsuit as the former owner of the property, what that means in the real world is you have five calendar days to respond. Now, not 30 like the typical lawsuit. You don't add any days for service. Uh, it's it's going to simply be the case that you need to respond in five calendar days. So it can be one caveat. If if you serve by way of nailing and mailing rather than personal service, yes, you do get additional time. You get an additional ten days. 
So that can be a meaningful amount of time to give you more time to respond. But in a lot of cases, you will be served personally. You will have to respond in five calendar days. Uh, the purpose of today's show is not to go into all the strategy and tactics related to how to respond. I've covered some of that on previous shows. Uh, no doubt there will be a future topic where it will be appropriate to cover that in the future. Right now I want to focus on discovery. So one of the reasons why you might file a motion to quash, for instance, to start your case, there are strategic reasons, and you often will have a legitimate reason to do that. Again, today's show really isn't about going into the mechanics of that per se. Let's just say you did start a case with a motion to quash. Let's say you did file a demure rather than an answer. The motion to quash was denied, which is typical. Or let's say you started your case with filing an answer. However you start your case on the defensive end, you can then go right into discovery. And there are several reasons for doing that. One of the primary reasons is you are almost always naturally going to be and inevitably going to be, because of the framework you're, you're operating in, in these unlawful lawsuits, you're going to be typically on the defensive. You're going to have very short timelines for doing everything. Now, if discovery is put on you, you're going to be stuck with the same timelines. But guess what? If you put discovery on the other side, they only have five calendar days to respond. And if you overnight express mail your, 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 your discovery in California, by the way, all the timelines I'm giving you right here, right now, or California, you're going to have to check with your state. If you're in a non-judicial foreclosure situation in your state, you do need to check the the relevant laws and statutory framework for unlawful detainer lawsuits in your in your state. Now, the framework is generally going to follow what would obtain for renters. Remember, you're a holdover tenant. But in California, and at least to some extent in the other non-judicial foreclosure states, that means you have limited rights, but you still have some rights. In California, you basically get all the litigation rights that a renter accused of, of violating the lease, of not paying, whatever the case may be, they're subject to an eviction lawsuit. You get all those protections yourself in terms of timelines, in terms of legal procedure. And I'm not saying that that's identical at all non-judicial foreclosure states. However, in California, that is how it works. So it's worth checking your jurisdiction. Even in California, you should consult with an attorney who specializes in this area before making final decisions because, again, you're under a very short timeline if you are subject to a post-foreclosure eviction lawsuit. So the written discovery you, you, you will be putting out if you, you have the wherewithal, the time, the resources, or simply the intention. It's often worth doing this even if you're limited in time and resources. The opposition institutional defendant, they're going to have very limited time to respond. If you express mail in California, the service, they'll only have an extra two days to respond. If you send it regular mail, 
they'll have an extra five days to respond, which is really 10. And remember, as with service of any kind, the response date cannot fall on a non-court day. So you always have to move ahead to the next calendar day, rather, calendar day that's also a court day. Uh, let's say you express mail your, your service. Let's say you do the service on a Monday, but the following Monday is some kind of a court holiday. That would be seven days out. Well, the defendant, institutional defendant is going to have one extra day to respond. So the types of things that you can and should put in your discovery, there are form interrogatories you can use in California. One relates to general litigation. One relates to UP litigation. If I were doing this, and again, I'm not giving legal advice. I will give this disclaimer of literally every show, but I try to remember to do that just so listeners in the moment do know and I'm letting them know right now. Nothing said during this broadcast is legal advice. <clears throat> this is a chat show of sorts, even when I'm presenting solo as I am today. It's still a chat show, meaning we're talking about ideas, we're talking about information. We're not framing anything as a blueprint, legal or otherwise that people should follow. People need to do follow-up. People need to look into what we talk about. People need to consult with an attorney uh, before pursuing these ideas. So when you do the discovery, you want the institutional player who claims to own your note. A lot of the types of questions you would put in there, uh, for instance, you could do special interrogatories to this effect, the types of things you would ask in a qualified written request, you ask for them to do certain bonafides to show that they possess the note. You ask who has the control and custody of the note and the associated deed of trust. You make them address any chain of assignment problems that a forensic loan audit, for instance, might expose. You can do a lot of request for admission where you're simply asking them uh, things like, you know, these are closed-ended questions often as they would be in a trial, for instance, where you're putting on cross-examination. You can use those kinds of closes and questions, something like, you don't have a legitimate right to collect on this debt. And then it's yes or no, that type of thing. And remember, uh, it's not permissible to use discovery as a tool to harass the other side or to overburden them or to unreasonably subject them to lines of questioning that are only peripherally related to their case. However, real world and legal world, I often say that on this show, uh, I always find it troubling that I have to say it on this show. Not because I'm saying it on this show, but because the real world 
leads me to observe that where the borrower and the former homeowner is the one subject to discovery, they're often harassed. They're often subjected to questions that are peripheral to anything that they're doing in the unlawful retainer lawsuit as a defendant. But if they go to the judge with a sanctions motion to complain about what's being done to them, they'll rarely get any relief. Bottom line, it's a very high standard that the recipient of discovery must show. If they're going to say that they were harassed or the purpose of discovery is essentially to uh, illegitimately oppress their, their client. So discover a way. It can be very legitimate. And again, you can use a qualified written request as a kind of blueprint for the types of questions you would put in there. Now, what if it's a third-party purchaser? Well, third-party purchasers will always say 100% of the time. They will always say that they're a bona fide purchaser. They will always say that they had the right to purchase even if there was litigation, even if there was a list pendants on, which is actual notice in the county recorder that there was a lawsuit at the time. However, even if there's not a list pendants, just so borrowers will know, listeners will know, even if there wasn't a list pendants prior to your property going to sale, even if you weren't in an active lawsuit prior to your property going to sale, a lot of borrowers in these situations have been savvy, at least to some extent, about their rights for years. So a lot of these borrowers will have recorded a preservation of interest with the county recorder. If you recorded a preservation of interest about your property and you never revoked it, that is actual real notice in the chain of recorded documents. So if any third-party purchaser buys your property at an auction sale, they're subject to that notice. Uh, Because remember, even if you have a lawsuit going, unless you have an absolute stay, automatic stay, prohibiting the sale of the property for some period of time, and it may even be a stay that you got to be a, a preliminary injunction at the beginning of the case, Unless you have something that prohibits either outright or for some period of time sale of your property when you're a plaintiff in California, for instance, uh, your property can go to sale, even if there's a list pendants on it, either because of, of the lawsuit you're in now or it could even be a previous lawsuit where the list pendants, you never took it off. However you got there, the other side is on notice that there's litigation involved. Again, that will not per se make their purchasing of the property convert them to a non-bonafide purchaser. But at least you have the leading edge of an argument that they're not a bonafide purchaser. And just so if you have a preservation of interest that you've recorded in your document chain somewhere, anybody who buys your property at auction later was on notice by definition that that's in the recorded chain of documents. It might have been put there years ago. It might have been put there 10 hours before the property went to sale. 
it doesn't matter when it was put there. Notice is imputed to the purchaser when they go to auction, the third-party purchaser. And notice is absolutely real and meaningful if it wasn't 10 hours before the sale. If it was either days or weeks or months or even years before the sale. Even years before the sale, they need to check the full record uh, to see what litigation and what other rights of interest obtained prior to their buying the property. Otherwise, they're subject to lawsuit and the argument that they're not a bona fide purchaser. Now, discussing that in detail goes beyond the scope of today's show. I won't get into that. Uh, I will say that when you're issuing your discovery on the third-party purchaser, what you want to do is address the fact, for instance, that they bought the property when there was a list pendants on it. That's what happened. Address the fact that they bought the property when you had recorded a preservation of interest, even years before. That all raises the possibility, which is hard to prove in court, but at least you can raise it as an issue, that they're predatory and that it's not like they're an innocent purchaser. They knew that this property was literally in litigation or it was subject to litigation, and they bought it anyway. Uh, you can also potentially bring up patterns of behavior. Uh, with an institutional player, that would involve possible decrees that they've entered with the government. Uh, with the so-called third-party purchaser, that would involve the fact that they have a predatory pattern of buying properties. Some third-party purchasers even specialize in buying properties on them because they can get them for even less money because typically other other third-party purchasers who show up at auction will not buy properties that have a list and then on them. So that drives down the auction price. And some predatory third-party purchasers will look for those properties. So if you find patterns of what, what essentially could be described at least generally as predatory behavior, it's worth inquiring about that. Remember, discovery is always considered legitimate if you're discussing any fact that tends to show some fact related to your case might be true or not. I mean, that's an incredibly vague general standard. That's why written discovery is such a powerful vehicle, forcing the other side to address and answer certain issues. And again, if you put a lot of questions to the opposition, they literally only have seven days to respond when it's done by express mail. You're probably going to get a lot of generic answers and non-compliant answers. You might even be able to go in for a sanctions motion. That's, you know, I wouldn't say, well, that's beyond the scope of today's show. Let's put it that way. But you can at least get discovery out there and at least slow them down because they're going to want to steamroll you and they want, to, they want to get to trial as quickly as possible, you slow them down if you put discovery on them. Now, how do you respond to discovery? Well, responding to discovery is, of course, a big issue in and of itself. Uh, frankly, it's going to be similar whether you're in a situation where the beneficiary, so-called, is, is suing you in unlawful detainer court 
or whether it's a third-party purchaser. Bottom line, either way, there are going to be a lot of questions about what's your relationship to the property. They want to tie you to certain activities to your property. Uh, at a minimum, they're going to show that you don't have a rental agreement. They just have to get get that out as a possible reason for you being uh, a defendant in the case. Of course, everybody knows that, including the judge, but from a legal point of view, from a legal point of view, they need to establish that you're not a renter. So the bottom line is if you get discovery, even if you're going to get very generic answers sent out, send them out. Be as general and generic as possible if you need to be. Don't be late in your discovery response. If you are, then all of your answers will be deemed admitted. And, of course, you don't want that. So that's uh, today's show. I will get into uh, negotiating trends in a lawful detainer settlement. That was one of the topics I intended to address today. We will get into that in a future show. You will be back next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.